Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Here we are with the Beeson Podcast, and today it's just a bit unusual. Yes, Dr. Robert Smith Jr. is here with me in the studio, but we're not going to introduce a sermon by someone else. We're going to ask Dr. Smith to tell us about one of his own sermons, a sermon with an unusual title. Dr. Smith, you preached a sermon entitled Irreconcilable Differences and Inescapable Realities based on the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1 leading up to chapter 20. What are you doing here in this sermon? Dean George, I am trying to establish this proposition that God is ultimately only identified uh, in his word, not necessarily in his action, his movements, or his works, so that Jeremiah, who did not have any action uh, or movement or works on the part of God shown to him in chapter 20, did have his word. I said I would not speak anymore in his name, but his word was in my heart like fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary of holding it in. Indeed, I could not. So what I'm trying to do is say to the congregation who will preach in an age of idolatry, don't become distracted uh, by uh, these, uh, the need of people to have something that is demonstrable, uh, something um, that is sensational, because there's a lot of prosperity preaching mm. and a, a lot of God does this and God moves. What do you do when God is not uh, moving and God is not acting and God is not speaking audibly? Except to trust what God has already said in his word, because that's when you know he is always identified in his word. That's all we have is that inspired word. And I'm to trust that even when I don't see God moving, God acting, or God speaking. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we yes. do not see. Absolutely. So you're calling us here to a kind of faithful commitment to God and his word. Good times, bad times, yes. rainy days, yes. sunshine. Yes. We're going to trust him whether we see the evidence for it or not. Yes. And what I'm, what I'm saying is that I think preachers have this uh, particularized kind of idolatry where we are dependent upon the movement of God rather than being dependent upon the Word of God. You talk about theological idolatry. That yes. That's kind of a special temptation for pastors and preachers. Yes. And I think that's one of the reasons why you don't see a great deal of church growth on the part of Jeremiah. And he's preaching when an individual like Hananiah is talking about God is not going to keep you in Babylon for 70 years, only two years. Everybody likes a word like that. But we must speak the word of God, in spite of the absence of his movement, his action, and any audible word. It's a sermon that's piercing, it's applicable, it applies to every single one of us. Dr. Smith, it's a joy to work with you and to hear you preach, and now we're all going to listen to you preach this great sermon entitled, Irreconcilable Differences and Inescapable Realities. Dr. Smith, on the prophet Jeremiah. 
even now, Lord Jesus, for I ask this in your name. Amen. Irreconcilable differences and inescapable realities. Jeremiah 1, verse 8 and verse 19. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Hear these words from the word. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Verse 19. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, says the Lord. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I can not. Like sandpaper, the ministry and message of Jeremiah rubbed against the society in which he preached. Many scholars will say that Jeremiah's ministry was at best an heroic failure or a successful failure. For he preached for 40 years during the reign of five different kings and failed to move the nation. He preached during the reign of Josiah, who reigned for 31 years. He was the one who initiated a national and religious reform. But Jeremiah, after supporting it, came to realize that at the very individual root level, that people were not being transformed. He preached during the three-month reign of Jehoahaz. He preached during the 11-year reign of Jehoiakim, that infamous king who cut up the scroll, the word of God, with a penknife, and threw it in the fire. He preached during the three-month reign of Jehoiachin, during which Nebuchadnezzar deported 10,000 Jewish patriots to Babylon. He preached during the 11-year reign of the puppet king Zedekiah. And therefore, scholars conjecture that after 40 years of preaching, that Jeremiah's message and ministry was at best an heroic failure or a successful failure. It caused Jeremiah to think about his message and to measure his ministry. Hear him as he thinks about his ministry. He was an individual who was not really called, if you will, to the ministry. He was drafted. Not like Isaiah who volunteered. God asked him, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, even without receiving a job description. Here am I, O Lord, send me. <laughs> Jeremiah objected. He came kicking and screaming. I'm too young. And God says, before you were born, I knew you. Before you were conceived, I ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. And to infer that he was afraid of their faces. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you. Jeremiah was an individual who had come to understand that he preached the same word from the same God that the other prophets said that they were preaching. Jeremiah said he was representing Yahweh and preaching from the Torah. So did Hananiah and the other prophets. And yet their messages were diametrically opposed. 
Jeremiah was put on the unapproved speakers list. <laughs> In fact, he probably was the only one on the list because his message was unpopular. In 70 years, Judah, you're going into captivity. And there you will stay. Build houses, plant vineyards, marry, and God will bring a remnant back. That's very unpatriotic. And he was not allowed to preach at the annual convention of any denominational setting. <laughs> Jeremiah was an individual who struggled with his own, if you will, moodiness. No one was like Jeremiah for sitting down and taking a pose for a portrait. He didn't mind you taking his portrait. He wanted you to see that he was autobiographical. He wanted you to understand that he was transparent. He didn't mind you taking and putting your hand on his pulsating heartbeat. He didn't mind you knowing his latest EKG reading and his latest echocardiogram reading because he wanted you to understand that he was just like you and just like me. He wanted you to take a slither of his human tissue for biopsy so that you could understand that he had proneness toward uh, frustration and depression just like we have that same proneness. Hear how moody he is in chapter number um, 9, verse number 1, chapter number 9, verse number 2. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were a fountain of tears, I'd weep day and night for the daughter of my people. One verse later, verse number two. Oh, that I could find an end in the desert so I could get the heck away from these people. <laughs> a holiday inn would be fine. A red roof inn would be fine. A best western inn would be fine. In fact, a motel six would be fine. But he just got finished saying, I wish my head were waters and my eyes were fountain of tears. I'd weep there at night for the daughter of my people. Now he doesn't want to be around them. He's temperamental. He's moody. And he sits down and he begins to evaluate his ministry. And he raises two issues. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 22. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And my people are not yet saved. After all of this preaching. Verse number 22. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? If there is a bomb and I've got the medicine. If there is a physician and I'm the doctor. Why is it that the daughter of my people are still sick? At best, perhaps his ministry was an heroic failure or a successful failure in the eyes of these scholars. But his greatest struggle was not with ascertaining and evaluating the meaning of his ministry. His greatest struggle with, was with the mode of the manifestation of the presence of God. Where is God? Jeremiah was told by God, I am with you. Chapter 1, verse 8, I am with you to deliver you. Chapter 1, verse 19, I am with you to deliver you. Chapter 15, verse number 20, I am with you to rescue you and save you. Chapter 30, verse number 11, I am with you to save you. Chapter 42, verse 11, I am with you to save you and deliver you. And yet Jeremiah has to grapple with the absence of God in terms of the lack of activity, the lack of God's movement, and the lack of God's work in his life. He struggled with this. He knew that he would not have a support system from the priests and from the prophets and certainly not from the kings. But even God's support system at times for him seemed to be very suspect and questionable. And Jeremiah had to come to a place where he would understand 
that God is ultimately only identical in his words. Even if there are no actions, no movements, or no works, God is ultimately only identical in and with his word. He learned that. Abraham had to come to learn that. God says, take your son, your only son, the son you love, laughter, Isaac, on a mountain and sacrifice him. And I'll tell you the mountain when you come to it. Abraham did it unquestionably, at least explicitly, externally. And when he came to this place where he is to offer up Isaac, it would have made it much easier for Abraham if God would have placed the ram right at the bottom of Mount Moriah. God's action, God's work, and God's movement. But God didn't. And Abraham said to his servants, you stay right here while I and my son go up to the mountain and worship and then we will return. There was no ram there. It was at the top and he didn't know it would be there. He had to trust God's word because God is only identical with ultimately his word, not with his action, not with his works and not with his movements. And when he got up to the top, even before he saw that ram, he got ready to kill Isaac because he knew when we sneak over to Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19, which he didn't know at that time, 2,000 years later, that Abraham reasoned that if it was necessary for Isaac to be killed, God was able to raise him from the dead because he said, out of Isaac shall all people be blessed. It was God's word. Abraham had enough sense to know that if the God of the word did not work out his word, then Abraham could use the word of God as a testimony against God. Because God has to keep God's word. And sure enough, when he got ready to carry it out, the angel said, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you fear God more than you fear anything because you're willing to give your own son for me. You are willing to believe in the God of the word when the word of God doesn't even seem to be fulfilling in your life. He had to learn that message. And so did Elijah. Elijah needed a fresh encounter with God. He had gone in 24 hours from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat. And he asked God to take his life. And now he stands at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And there is... There are manifestations. There, there is the earthquake. There is the windstorm. And there is the outbreak of fire. But God is not in either. And I understand that these three metaphors represent, in some instances, three idol gods. Gods of the, of the, God of the earthquake, of the wind, and of the fire. Uh, but uh, they also represent God because God does uh, intervene and show himself uh, in an earthquake. When Moses was receiving the law, uh, the mountain quake. Uh, when uh, Ezekiel was preaching in the valley of dry bones, the ruach blew into the nostrils of uh, those corpses. And even Elijah had seen God send down fire from heaven and burn up those corpses on Mount Carmel. But God was not in either of those three. He was in a still small voice, his word, because God is only ultimately identical with his word when there are no actions, no movements of God and no works from God. Luke chapter 5 verse 5 Peter had to understand that Jesus saw him and told him to launch out into the deep and let down his net for a great catch 
And Peter looked at him and said, Master, we've taught all night and we've caught nothing. As if to say, we are men of the sea. We know when to fish, where to fish, and we know how to fish. But nevertheless, at your word, we will do it again. And when he did... He and his brother Andrew had to signal for James and John to help because there were so many fish that the boat was beginning to sink. Peter understood that faith in God is more than just faith in God. Faith is also faith against the absence of the works of God, the actions of God, and the movements of God. You've got to not only believe in God, you've got to believe against what God does not provide in terms of a mode of manifestation and trust him because his word said it. In other words, you and I have got to come to the place where we have in spite of faith, where we have even though faith, where we have irregardless faith. I trust God because God is only identical ultimately only in his in his word and not his actions, his works and not his movements. I think this is where we come as preachers, ministers, dangerously close to committing theological idolatry. Theological idolatry is a special brand of idolatry that for the most part is reserved for clergy persons. We have our own brand of theological idolatry. It's a human construction when we construct our own caricatures of God, we imagine them and then we preach them to others and our people as alongside us bow down at caricatures of God instead of bowing down at the character of God that's found in God's word. I think J.B. Phillips was trying to tell us about this in his book, uh, Your God is Too Small. When he lifts up at least three, several, several metaphors or caricatures of God, those human constructions and human imaginations that we have in terms of saying this is the God that we serve. The God of the police beat who walks around with his uh, divine billet club and enjoys inflicting pain on people. That is not the God that we serve. The God, if you will, of the box that we engage, we don't need him when we don't need him, but when we need him and there's an emergency, we call for him, we push the button, and a jack-in-the-box God comes out and meets us in our emergencies. As if God is our theological bellhop and our ecclesiastical red cap and our Christological Santa Claus, and he exists only to make life convenient and easy for us. That is not the God that we serve. Or the God who sits in his lazy boy who is afflicted with dementia and advanced Alzheimer's and uh, cannot uh, remember the evil that we've done and so we get away with murder. Those are caricatures of God. We preach those kinds of things. We bow down at the altar of them and even get our people to do the same thing. What makes it so bad is we take and construct molds for which we expect God to fit in. Unless God fits in this mold and acts the way we think he ought to act and moves when we think he ought to move and works how we think he ought to work, then there is no real presence of God. Because what we try to do is to reconcile two irreconcilable differences the perceived presence of God, these caricatures of God, and the real presence of God that is found in his word. May I remind us this, this evening that God cannot be squeezed into any mold. 
He's too big for that. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And as, as ubiquitous and omnipresent and immense as he is, if he moves anywhere in the universe, he has to bump into himself. So therefore, I cannot construct any kind of mold for God to fit in. He will burst every single mold that we ever make. When we try to uh, reconcile these two, these two irreconcilable differences, basically what we're trying to do is construct molds for God to fit in, and thereby we are trying to mandate the presence of God. We're trying to manufacture the presence of God. We're trying to manipulate the presence of God. The big question that's raised from the song William Cowper wrote, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides on every storm is this. What if he doesn't move? Can I trust him when he doesn't move? Can I trust him when he doesn't act? Can I trust him when he doesn't work? The truth of the matter is that you and I uh, very close to committing Christological uh, idolatry and theological idolatry when we have these caricatures of God. I must be more enamored over God's essence than I am over God's execution, what God does to carry things out. I must be more enamored over God's signature in the word than over God's signage in creation. I must be more enamored over God's uh, person that I am over God's production and I must be more enamored over God's nounness who he is than over God's verbness what he does when he decides not to do anything he's still God I don't know why we think that creation made God more God God was just as much God before there was a creation ex nihilo moment and creation didn't add anything to God. God didn't have to prove anything by saying let there be. God in his triune nature was still God. And I've got to come to the place that I preach a gospel to people that reminds them that God is who he is. Even though he does not necessarily act, move, or work. Brothers and sisters, this is the ministry of Jeremiah. God says to Jeremiah, come down to the potter's house in Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 6. And he sees that the potter has worked with this piece of pottery so that there's a flaw in the piece of pottery. And yet he doesn't throw it away. And God asked in verse 5 and 6 of Jeremiah 18, why is it that I can't do with this piece of pottery what the potter has done? to the piece of pottery. Why can't I work with flawless people? It looks like there's a chance that there might be redemption, but in chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, God says, take a piece of pottery in the midst of everybody and break it so that when people ask you, why did you do that? Let them know that the charge is now irrevocable. Let them know that the damage is irreparable. Let them know that the wound is incurable. It's too late. They are going into captivity in Babylon. Chapter 19, verse 15, and 16 God says these people have a stiff neck they've been looking away from me so long that they can't turn their neck back chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 Jeremiah has preached a sermon that the pastor of the temple doesn't like his name is Pasha he's a chief officer of the temple and he decides he's going to silence the prophetic voice by beating him up and putting him in stocks letting him, letting him stay there all night long thinking that in the morning he'll be softer 
and more mellow. But instead, he's more tougher. He gets out and says, first of all, uh, Pasha, your name has been changed. Your name is no longer Pasha. Your name is Maga Misabib, which means terror. You're going to see terror among your acquaintances and among your friend in your land. You're going to see terror in Babylon where you will see your kinfolks killed and even you will be killed in the land. Well, your name is Maga Misabib. One would think at this time that uh, he would receive the embrace of the divine. But instead, in verse number seven of chapter 12, Jeremiah takes and accuses God of sovereign seduction. He says, Lord, you deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I am. You overpowered me because you're stronger than I am. And uh, you have made me the option, object of derision and a laughingstock all day long. Do you hear what he's saying? You have... Uh, Seduce me. That word deceived is the word pata in Hebrew that you find in Exodus chapter 22 verse 16. For when a young virgin was violated by a man, a man had to pay for her dowry and then marry her. Do you hear Jeremiah saying, I have been seduced by the sovereign. I have been raped by royalty. I have been molested by majesty. What a word. You're stronger than I am. This is embarrassingly painful if you can see the language. You've raped me. You've done it against my will. I didn't want it. You're stronger than I am. And now I'm a laughing stock because the things you told me to say have not come to pass. The walls are still standing. The Jewish temple is still intact. And people are just making a joke out of me. Verse number eight. I cry out violence and destruction. And all I get all day long is just insult and reproach. He comes to a place where he is depressed. He lines up with those long lines of sages and saints of the ages. People like Samuel Logan of, of the inner life movement of the Salvation Army who said that melancholy was a constant companion of his. Martin Luther King Jr. who prayed that prayer in the kitchen. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. Charles Spurgeon who had to be assisted out of his office after regurgitating and vomiting, filled with depression and anxiety, but once he got to the pulpit it was just a different story. I'd just like to tell you if you can just make it to the pulpit on Sunday morning I don't care what is going on. Now God God is able to meet you there and do something with you. You talk about depressed. Elijah and Moses take my life. He knew what depression was. He comes to verse number nine. Here he is living between two inescapable realities after dealing with two irreconcilable differences. He says, but if I say I will not make mention of his name anymore. Make mention in Hebrew means not even think about him, not just talk, but not think about him. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it in. Indeed, I could not. Jeremiah would come to find out that it was difficult to go on, but it was impossible to give up. For the same God who would not let him go was the same God who would not let him down. Notice how verse 9 opens up with, I will not. It ends with, I cannot. And right in the middle, his word was in my heart. Because what kept him when he lived between two inescapable realities, uh, I can't go on. I will not make mention of his name anymore. But I can't give up. I cannot hold that word in. Because in the middle is his word that's in my heart like fire shut up in my bones. Because God is ultimately only identical with his action, with his word and not his action, not his movements and not his word. 
works. Jeremiah says, I'm living between two inescapable realities and the word is keeping me together. What do you do when you live between I can't go on, but I can't give up? What do you do with that? I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, that time will come. It did come with Paul who lived in a straight betwixt. He says, I'd like to stay here and be with you to edify you, but I'd rather go with, be with Jesus because it's far, far better. Or Jesus who said, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, let your will be done. And there'll come a time in your ministry where you live between these two inescapable realities and the word of God will have to keep you when there are no acts of God, no works of God, and no movements of God. Verse number 10, he says, uh, people are crying on every side, terror on every side. Let's report him, let's report him. It's true because what he has been saying had not come to pass. And we are told in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse verses 20 to 22, that if a prophet prophesied something, it didn't come to pass. They lined him up against a wall and they took his life. Jeremiah has preached and the walls are still intact and the temple has not yet been destroyed. And to make it worse, the Bible says that he says in his soliloquy, his self-conversation, he says, all my friends are waiting on me to slip, saying perhaps he will slip and he'll be deceived and we'll take our uh, revenge on him and we'll prevail over him. His friends are against him, but a gleam of light comes, like a wide view through a narrow window to use the words of Gardner C. Taylor. Verse 11, the Lord is with me. Verse 12, I will submit my cause to the Lord. Verse 13, sing unto the Lord. Praise the Lord, for he has rescued the life of the needy from the hand of the wicked. He's moved from sovereign seduction in verse 7 to sovereign serenading in verse 13. You don't just get there quick. You have to work your way through that. And nothing has happened. There is no action on the part of God. There's no move on the part of God. There's no work on the part of God. And yet he's serenading before there's any deliverance. He's come to understand that all he has is the word of God to really trust in. Brothers and sisters, that's really all we have. I wish I had a word that I could give you that would solve uh, the theodicy problem in uh, Virginia Tech. I don't know what to say except to say this. God is present. His word is still powerful. When I think about it, I have to say, oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder, consider all the world thy hand have made. I see the stars. I hear the roaring thunder, thy power throughout the universe display. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, not how great your acts are, not how great your works are, but not how great your movements are, how great thou art. We serve a great God in the midst of our disaster. I think if the sovereign one will serenade over us in Zephaniah 3.17, he rejoices over us in singing. I think that we ought to serenade the sovereign one, even though there are no visible acts of God's deliverance except by his word. I wish that this chapter would end with verse number 13, but instead it goes on to cursing. He moves verse 13 from singing to cursing, and then he says in the very end, he asks God a question, why is it that you allowed me to stay in this world and to live out my days in sorrow and shame? Why wasn't I, I strangled by my mother's umbilical cord when she gave birth to me? Why wasn't my mother's womb a tomb? Why didn't the person who uh, took and said, it's a boy to my father and said it's good news, why did he suffer the same fate as Adma and Zaborn and the cities of the plain? This is an unanswered question. In verse 13, he ends with an exclamation point. 
Sing unto the Lord. In verse 18, he ends with a question mark. Why did he let me live in shame? Well, Jeremiah is like Jesus, or Jesus uh, takes and fulfills, if you will, the suggestiveness of Jeremiah. Like Jeremiah, Jesus was a prophet who was rejected. Like Jeremiah, Jesus was wounded. Like Jeremiah, Jesus wept. But unlike Jeremiah, he transcended this matter of living between two inescapable realities. Do you see him? There he is. Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, let your will be done. Look at him on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And later on he cries out, Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. He lives between my God, why, and Father, into thy. But he moves to irreconcilable differences. Where he takes and does something that Jeremiah could not do. For he takes, he who was God in Christ became what he was not, human. And yet remain who it was? God. He who could not have fellowship with sin. He who knew no sin became sin. That we who were sinners might be made the righteousness of God. And he who was the author of life would submit himself to death. Every time he met death in his ministry, death had to die. He met death at Jairus' house and said to the little girl, Talitha Kuhn, I say unto thee, arise, and death died. Yeah. He met death at the cemetery of Nain and just touched the coffin top. And the boy got up with a brand new life. Yeah. He met death four days after Lazarus' funeral. Yeah. And all he said was, Lazarus, come forth. Yeah. And Lazarus rose from the dead. Yeah. But on Calvary, life submitted to death. Well. Life gave itself to death. For life said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down a ransom for many. Yes. And sure enough, two irreconcilable differences wow. were battling one Friday. Yes. And uh, Friday evening, Jesus died. Yeah. They put him in the tomb one Friday. And they said anything that dies stays in the grave oh yeah Friday death died Saturday Jesus was still in the tomb but Sunday morning up from the grave he arose with all power in his hand and because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future then life is just worth living because he lives You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.